Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to be doing a little recap of sorts, as well as a look ahead towards what is coming soon in terms of energy and climate developments. Joining me today to do this stock take and peer into the crystal ball is Kira Taylor, my foresight colleague who writes about everything climate, energy and environment, as well as producing all the podcasts that we publish on foresightdk.com. Welcome to the show, Kira. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to discuss what we're uh, what we've seen this year and what we're going to see in the future. So we have to get everything right, of course, otherwise people will uh, say that we don't know what we're talking about, which isn't true. Um, before we kick on with the episode, there is the small matter of the policy dispatch quiz that I know everybody uh, is enraptured by, uh, so that we have to take care of that first. This week, Kira is going to get involved too and try her best at the end of the show when I reveal the answer. Um, and here we go. The cleanest electricity grid in Europe emits just 23 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, a world leader. In which country is that situated? Is it A, France, B, Albania, C, Iceland, or D, Sweden? Answer at the end of the show. Have a think, Kira, and we'll see whether or not uh, one of those answers uh, comes to mind or not. So before we get into the big trends that have emerged in the energy transition this year, Um, maybe we can just pinpoint a specific policy or development that has really interested each of us so far in 2023. Sharing is caring. I like to talk about this stuff because it's like therapy, right? You get it outside of your head and uh, you can stop thinking about it a little bit. Um, I'll kick us off because I know that uh, mine is going to lead into yours a little bit. Uh, For me, um, one of the really fascinating ones was this e-fuels debate that we had in Brussels, um, which was basically combining everything that you love as a journalist, uh, crazy politics, mudslinging, uh, technical details, fast cars. Um, And this was when Germany and a couple of other member states decided to block new car engine standards that the EU had put together. Um, Everything had been agreed. The parliament had said, okay, the council had said, okay. And at the 11th hour, not even the 11th hour, the 12.01 12.01 p.m., um, Germany said, no, we don't want that because we want a role for e-fuels, these like synthetic fuels that you can make using carbon capture, and they're supposed to be carbon neutral because they emit the same amount of carbon you put into them, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they basically said to the commission, um, you have to include these. So in 2035, when we have this ban come in, um, these kind of cars can still exist. Um, and their argument was that there are more than a billion cars on the road at the moment. Those cars will need fuel. Um, will the fleet be able to renewal in time with electric cars? They say no. Um, so they held it to hostage, basically, and said to the commission, you need to bring in these implementing and delegated acts so that in 2035, um, these fuels can have a role, which is a gigantic ask of the European Commission, because you're basically asking them to create a new type of car. Um, you know, a new car class because you'll have to have an engine that will not be able to run on normal petrol and diesel. It will only be able to run on this fuel that is identical to regular petrol and diesel. 
Um, so they've got to take into account all these technologies like sensors and everything. Um, and that is still to come as well uh, because the commission eventually agreed to it. Um, and then there was a sting in the tail as well where Italy, after seeing Germany get its way, thought, oh, we can get something here as well for Ferrari and Lamborghini um, where we can fuel these cars with biofuel as well. And the commission had enough by that point and said, absolutely not, we're not, we're not opening that Pandora's box. Um, so it was all rather a bit of a mess and people were thinking, you know, if Germany gets away with this, then it doesn't stop any other country saying right at the end of the day, no, we don't like that agreement, we're not going to vote for it. Um, so I guess we'll also see whether or not that has a bigger impact on, on how things work here. Um, but I know that the thing that you were really interested in this year also has something to do with that as well. Yeah, so mine really leads on from yours in the sense of Germany opened a door, shall we say, which most member states would probably rather had remained closed. And when the Renewable Energy Directive came for the same agreement a bit earlier in the process, admittedly, so it wasn't as bad, um, but there was a group of countries led mostly by France who wanted particular changes to the text and it particularly came down to support for French nuclear. My, I'm not sure whether you also saw this, but a lot of the attention got put on the whole drama and it was very exciting because it was all in, like decided in corridors. And I mean, journalists love when things go wrong because oh, yes. it's something to write about. It's not so good for the climate, but it's something to write about. But actually, for me, I felt that we've kind of lost sight of what the Renewable Energy Directive actually did. And it's probably similar for CO2 standards for cars that, you know, this revision of the tax brought forward almost a doubling of uh, Europe's renewable energy capacity in 2020. It will now be 42.5% or the target is that for 2030. So it's a major piece of legislation still to finally be agreed. We will see how that goes probably in the autumn. Uh, and the other big thing for me with the Renewable Energy Directive that we're going to have to keep an eye on is that the previous version of this is still not fully implemented. Mm-hmm. And there's a new one. <laughs> And not just a new one, but one which was updated even before it had been agreed because of the invasion of Ukraine, they realized that they needed higher renewable energy targets. So I think the drama was one thing, and I think it's shown that there is this nuclear fight has come back to Brussels. It was kept under wraps for a while. Fit for 55 was fairly unaffected by it. And then suddenly it sprung up again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also there is this huge, huge target now for renewables and we need to actually the implement legislation to get there. And now that's up to EU countries. That's a great point. I mean, it was almost like playing 3D chess at some point where you've got the Renewable Energy Directive, like you say, that was already kind of in place that needs to be implemented. You got the Fit for 55, which updated it, and then the Repower EU stuff as well on top of that. So you know, I remember like getting press releases in the inbox and you've got, they're talking about the Renewable Energy Directive, but which one? Yeah, you know, red it, one, it, red two, red three. Yeah. I think there was a red four at one point. Yeah. I never worked out what red four was because no, it was it, sort of red three point, like one point yeah, I was like the director's cut of it, kind yeah. of, wasn't it? And, um, but yeah, like you say, implementation. I mean, that's another thing that um, I guess we'll all be keeping an eye on as well as, you know, national energy and climate plans that, have, that need to be submitted yeah. now. Like you have these targets, how are you actually going to implement them? That's the important part. 
and the whole thing with Fit for 55, I mean, we're also talking about the future of you know, energy and climate policy today and the implementation. It sounds more boring. And in a way, it's much harder to follow because at least when you're following policy in Brussels, you look at the European Parliament, you look at the Commission, you look at the Council, and you can put together a, a picture of it. But now it's spreading this to 27 member states who are working at a different pace. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how much pressure is put on them to actually implement this stuff or whether it just gets forgotten about. 27 member states, each of them have got probably five or six ministries that are all going to be taking care yeah. of it. They've all got sub-departments and suddenly you realise that um, maybe this isn't as easy as it should be uh, by design. Um, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of specific stuff that has excited us over the last um, couple of months or so. Um, if we take like a wider view of energy and climate developments, I mean, I guess we definitely have to start with the energy price crisis. I mean, that bled over from last year, triggered largely by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you get fragile energy markets already kind of struggling, and then suddenly this you know huge event takes place. Um, and your energy bill probably was as catastrophic as mine as well. Yeah, I actually started paying my energy bills. I took them over from my landlord during the energy crisis. Uh, so it was kind of a double whammy for me. Yeah, grief. I mean, I think, and things have only relatively uh, stabilized recently, really. I mean, you know, now we're, staying, we're seeing negative prices in different countries, yeah. which is not always a good thing either. Um, what was the main thing that you think has been triggered policy-wise by, by the energy price crisis? I think up to a few months ago, I would have said the relation between renewables and security. Mm -hmm. That was the biggest thing we saw come out of the energy crisis was that suddenly people related particularly cheap renewable energy because it was domestically produced to Europe's security mm -hmm. in general. Obviously, this was kind of triggered by the fact that gas from Russia almost disappeared. I think now, though, I haven't heard that narrative so much. And we've gone a bit more back to how do renewables actually get rolled out? And that mm -hmm. pressure has vanished a bit. So I'd be interested to see whether that sudden rush to renewables actually equals renewables on the ground producing mm -hmm. energy. It was almost like it was a bit of a fad. Yeah, rather yeah. Than inbuilt policy now i mean the, the cover of the foresight magazine got to get the plug in um it kind of recreates the you know I iwo jima flag but it's a wind turbine and i think that summed up quite nicely the thing that you said is that this appreciation for renewables plus energy security it's a very simple solution you know you can get the wind doesn't have to be imported yeah. from another country we, we get it anyway on solar and another renewable sources as well. I think it was also a really good talking point because I followed the Emergency Energy Councils <laughs> very closely. I spent so much time in the council building. Um, and you had ministers come, like sometimes it was every two weeks, mm -hmm. and they had to say something new because there was a TV crew and there were people back home seeing these massive bills and they needed to say something. So you really did get these talking points on renewables as energy security, not so much on energy savings. And I think that's the thing that even within the high pressure of the energy crisis, uh, we never saw. No. Uh, and I think, again, we'll see that kind of fading back out again. EU countries don't like speaking about energy savings. This is what I've learned. The demand side of things, I mean, again, it, you know, you always have the same soundbite. It doesn't matter who's saying it, commissioners or politicians, as you know, the cheapest energy is the one that you don't need in the first place, blah, 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 blah. But that has not particularly bled over into, you know, these hundreds of billions of euros that have been 
put into subsidies over the last 12 months or so to help subsidize energy bills. Very little of that was put into, right, the best thing we can do is make sure that buildings are renovated, uh, infrastructure is actually up to code, make sure that the electricity doesn't just bleed away when we when we produce it, um, which I know a lot of associations here especially are very upset about because you've basically frit away all this money by paying for energy that should have been cheap in the first place. We also saw that, I mean, just with the measures that states were rolling out, there was criticism for some states which just kind of gave blanket help to people without even measuring whether people even needed it. And that criticism of, well, if you don't reflect reflect that price in people's bills, are they even going to act on this? And I mean, that balance between ensuring people can stay warm and can have electricity between not overusing it, I think, was suddenly in the spotlight. And I'm a bit worried that has gone again. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Portugal and, and Spain were looking for this, the, the Iberian exception or, or whatever it's called of you know price caps and, and that kind of thing, it, there was a massive danger that if that narrative had been you know, taken over by other countries that, well, energy demand is just going to double, triple, quadruple, you don't know. Um, and like you say, there doesn't seem, that isn't a lesson that doesn't seem to be learned. Um, one lesson that might have been learned, I guess, is that uh, electricity markets had to be uh, reformed somehow. We went from Ursula von der Leyen basically saying that the markets are absolutely not fit for purpose, they don't work, we need to redo them completely, um, to a slightly more nuanced approach that we got a couple of months ago where they need to be reformed, but what we've got works, but we don't like the result. Um, so how, how do you think that the electricity markets are, you know, what's that journey look like at the moment? Is it going anywhere exciting or are we kind of bogged down in details about, you know, contracts for difference. And I mean, again, it depends what you call exciting, because oh, yeah. <laughs> for you and I watching the details on contracts for difference is probably one of oh, the most power exciting purchase things. Agreements, amazing. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, like you say, the commission backtracking from like, Ursula von der Leyen's <laughs> massive, let's decouple electricity and gas. The amount of people who learn what decoupling electricity and gas actually did mean or to be honest, didn't mean it didn't mean that much really you had to get really bogged down into the details before you could even explain how that would work um was fascinating to watch last year and like you said the it it was more kind of a band-aid over the the issue than the major reform Mm -hmm. and i don't know how your perspective of it was when it first came out we saw spain happy which was impressive given how much they were pushing on it and then everyone kind of just went quiet and it felt like this would be something which they would just rush through say there were issues and then suddenly it became a thing did you have similar watching it i think so because you had that immense political pressure as well at first which i'm sure is what led the commission president to say that you know we need to do something major here um and then that kind of bled away as you know Energy bills went down, stabilized a bit. They're still higher than they used to be, but people have short memories. So I think as soon as you take that political pressure out of it, and this is revealed to be an extremely technical piece of legislation that people only pretend to know or understand, putting my hand up there as well. Um, yeah, and I mean, towards the end of June, where you know, you know as well as I do that there was this mad rush to try and get an agreement in the European Council about how to reform the electricity market review. And suddenly all hell descended in yeah. chaos where everyone was talking about things that weren't really linked to this. It was their own personal vested interest suddenly bleeding into this. 
um, because it became too high profile again. I guess yeah. people were looking I at it. I think the other thing, and this is partly that uh, a wider issue that we've seen with the Green Deal, is that there isn't that much industrial policy. So there was the net zero industry act, but again, people argue how much that actually acts as industrial policy. And this wasn't done in, you know, at the beginning of this process. It's kind of been thrown in at the end. Yeah. And as we are seeing this, you know, debate between France and Germany, which is not completely what's holding up the electricity market reform, but is part of it. Yes. This does come down to different industrial, you know, basis and how that affects it. And like you say, it's it's gone beyond market reform now. The one thing I would say, because I've been watching the nature restoration law recently, is that I don't think they can get away with not doing this. Mm-hmm. There was so much pressure on it. And I know we've said that the pressure has eased slightly, but this was a big promise that mm-hmm. was made. And so I think something does have to be done. The speed of which it happens and how much it is actually effective at the end, I think, is the question here. I mean, we have got that ticking clock, haven't we? I mean, the whole point of getting that European Council agreement at the end of June is that then the Spanish, who are currently chairing all the, the presidency meetings, would be able to work on the trilateral talks with the Parliament and Commission. But suddenly they've got this to do as well, because the Swedish couldn't finish it. And then you've got the European Parliament elections in June next year. There will be campaigning months before that. Commission will go into like lame duck mode. Um, there isn't that much time left. And there are other things that need to be done. Uh, energy Performance of Buildings Directive, uh, getting the renewables thing actually finalized. Yeah. Um, I mean, just maybe moving on to the, the next kind of trend that we identified. You mentioned the Net Zero Industry Act um, and the general competitiveness of industry in this Green Deal world that we live in is a huge issue and it's split among so many different things nature restoration act net zero industry act renewables energy efficiency everything um but europe isn't particularly good at doing industrial policy i mean this year you know united states comes out with its inflation reduction act hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies if you can you know get tax credits and stack them all together you can do carbon capture and hydrogen production and electricity vehicles and all that kind of thing um because they can print their own money. Whereas in the EU, you can't do that. Um, you mentioned the Net Zero Industry Act. I mean, what yeah. is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, this comes down to the difference between the US and the EU. The US puts money at problems, the EU puts regulation at problems. You probably need a combination of both to actually succeed. One thing, I can't remember who's in the commission, but said about it was that they don't want to waste money. They know they can't replicate the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> if there is enough money behind the Net Zero Industry Act is another question. It does feel like quite a quickly put together thing. You wouldn't expect that the big green industrial policy that supports the Green Deal would have been reactionary based on what we're seeing from the US, what we're, what we're seeing from China. And yeah, I think it's very difficult to explain what the Net Zero Industry Act actually is. I think I always describe it as like bringing competitiveness back into the EU. But again, how do you even say that in a way that people understand? Yeah, I mean, it's only a small aspect of it. But the, the thing I kind of whenever you know have to write about it and describe it in less than 700 words um, is the priority list of technologies that will be eligible. But again, that's this sort of chimera that 
people are fighting over and they want to put everything into it. Yeah. Um, I'm terrified of lists, lists in the EU now. We start with the taxonomy, we'll see it with the net zero industry. At the second that there's something that some people can be inside of and some people can be outside of, no matter how much the criteria makes sense or doesn't make sense, people want to be on that list. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. I mean, it's like people say, you know, wider kind of EU policy is that nobody ever wants to do treaty change because that's a giant list that everyone wants to have their own little bit on. And, and these are exactly the same, but smaller, smaller um in scope and i guess importance but still as soon as you ask people what they want they'll tell you yeah <laughs> and, i mean earlier we were speaking about nuclear as well yeah. that's going to be a big thing with this and we are seeing france kind of pushing again on nuclear and there are other eu countries who are on board with that maybe not as vocally but who are benefiting from france you know pushing this forwards and i think that's going to be a big thing with the net zero industry act is the annex first of all is it going to survive Mm -hmm. and secondly is it going to have nuclear in it and if so how is that going to affect council decisions on it i mean with competitiveness of industry as well the eu is trying to help industries that are here i mean a lot of people are linked to uh that's how you win votes you know they employ a lot of people there's a lot of interest you've got to keep them happy uh one of the things they did to try and help that is the cbam carbon border adjustment mechanism to anyone who doesn't know by now, um, which basically will punish anyone importing certain products into the EU that didn't do a, didn't manufacture them in a certain green standard, steel, aluminium, you name it. Um, that's going to be phased in in October. Um, and this is going to be extremely interesting to watch, I think, because uh, is it legal? <laughs> that was the question from the beginning with it. I mean, I'm super excited because I came to Brussels about three years ago and that was as CBAM became a thing. Uh-huh. And a lot of Fit for 55, it was revisions of previous things. And this was kind of the new shiny thing that no one had a clue what it was really. Yeah. I think it points to like the commission was still kind of hammering out what it would actually look like. I remember the first time I saw the equation in a leak <laughs> and I just looked at it and I was like, is this maths? Is this, yeah. um, what is it? Um, but yeah, like you say, is it going to get challenged legally and is it going to be effective? Yes. I think that that's the really interesting part because, you know, China says that it will challenge it, but deep down wants to live in a world where green technology is appreciated because they make a hell of a lot of it. Um, maybe there will be other countries that do some sort of WTO challenge, but I think that it, you're right that the will this policy actually do anything? Will it stop industries from either relocating outside of the EU or you know, stop investments from coming in? Um, it, we'll see. I mean, it's 2026 that it will be fully phased in. That's a long way away, but also probably click of your fingers will be there. Um, and then other, I know other issues as well, like free allowances under the ETS need to be phased out. How effective will that be? Um, I think as soon as we see uh, people setting up green steel plants, more and more aluminium, you know, hydrogen actually being a part of Europe's industrial landscape rather than 
the thing that will happen tomorrow, <laughs> this will probably make a lot more sense. Yeah. But at the moment, it just seems like an extremely complex system whose only whose like main objective will be to not exist. Right? It wants a world this where it will be redundant. The ETS as well. The, these like pieces of legislation are designed to go away in the end. Yeah. It's um, you know it'd be it'd be really interesting to fast fast forward you know ten years and see whether or not there are these policies anymore. I mean, we'd be out of a job, but you know, um, <laughs> we'll never be out of a job. No, 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 there'll be more jargon for some other mechanism. Um, I mean, CBAM is, is very global looking. Um, another thing that's also very global is the the COP process. You know, climate summits that happen once a year. We've got one coming up this year, of course, COP twenty eight. I swear that we were on to a bigger number than that, but apparently it is 28. It feels like at some point we're going to hit 30 and then it's yeah. going to feel like we've been doing this a long yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when it reaches the same age or something, that must not be uh, the really depressing part because nothing ever changes. Um, November until December, I want to say. Yeah, it's a very annoying. I think it starts like the very last day of November and then uh. it goes into December. So for anyone who writes about it, we have to say both months. Mm -hmm. So it's just if anyone who's listening arranges these types of things, <laughs> please just put them solidly in one month. It would make journalists' life so much easier. The word count is, is yeah. it's the it's, holy it's grail. You know? um, I mean, it's very hard to say what will come out of this summit because nothing really comes out of these summits. Bits and pieces come out of these summits and they get stacked on top of one another and then five years later you get some sort of tangible result. Um, I think we've seen things floating around already about global renewable energy targets, energy efficiency targets, uh, phase down or phase out of fossil energy, whatever you want to put it. Um, what do you think are going to be the things that we need to look out for there, other than nothing happening? Yeah, I think it's fascinating because coming from COP26, which was, you know, the first, well, mid post COVID mm -hmm. one. So there was a big shift that happened as that one. We then went to Egypt and the big thing was on climate finance. And this one, we have the global stock take. Mm -hmm. And it's that odd thing of, you know, if you, you know, it's a bit weird to use this analogy because it's not going to be a good thing, but if you know what the birthday present is mm -hmm. and then you open it, are you even like surprised when you get it? And that's going to be what it is for the global stock take. We, we know it's going to be bad. Yeah. Maybe it's like, you know, that you've got socks for Christmas. Maybe that's the right analogy for this. Like we know that it's not going to go well. So how much that actually impacts COP if we all go, Oh, well, we thought that was going to be bad. And then we get on with it, yeah. which is a tendency you can see in climate policy. There's no political pressure to do, yeah. to be ambitious, I guess, if you know it's not going to be. Precisely. And then, I mean, the other thing is with Dubai hosting, you're beginning to see this narrative of like all energy, all energy sources and carbon capture and storage. Right. And I think that's going to be interesting with the EU coming into this with a big focus on this like fossil fuel phase down and then this kind of, Emirates' focus on energy is good, but let's kind of mitigate some of the emissions. And I think it'll be interesting to see the EU and how they work there. Because, I mean, for COP26, they were in lockstep with the UK. Yeah. Now it's going to be interesting to see how much they put the weight behind the COP presidency, which they've done quite a lot so far, and how much they put their foot down and say, actually, we believe something different. I mean, there's, you know, there's a wider game at play here as well about, you know, energy supply as well. A lot of energy supply has shifted to that part of the world now. So suddenly saying that that part of the world needs to be the leader this year in phasing down fossil fuels does, I think, to not even intellectuals sound a bit hypocritical. 
Um, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's, it's also going to be interesting to see about where the next one is, because we still don't know. And these things normally take about 18 months to plan, which is now. Um, and one of our previous guests on, on the podcast, uh, we were talking about Australia. And Australia wants to be the host because the new government wants to uh, draw a line under the coal obsession of the previous administrations, even though this new one is also pretty into oil and gas exports. Um, but that this COP that's coming up now might be a point for other emitters in the world to put pressure on Australia to say, well, if you want the next one, you have to join us in backing things like the phase down renewable energy target for the world. Um, so I think that'll be, that'll be quite interesting to see the, I mean, the politics are always interesting because this is a political event. This is by no means like a policy event, but what is decided there will define policy for the next hundred years. Yeah. um, I think it's interesting, especially if it does go to Australia as well after this, you have these countries who've been into fossil fuels to say it lightly. I mean, that does give them a lot of expertise in how that industry works and how it can transition. So this could be an amazing thing where people bring that expertise and say, yes, this is what we've done so far. This is the infrastructure we have. These are the knowledge that we have. Yes. This is where we go from here. And that could either go very well or very badly. Yes. I do not uh, envy the negotiating teams running these countries or the EU in trying to herd all of these thousands of cats in the same direction because it just seems like a totally not hopeless process, but um, there isn't a tangible result at the end, is there? You know, you, you had the big moment in 2015 with Paris Agreement where it was right, this is what we're going to do, and we just haven't had anything like that since. Whether or not this global stock take will be a moment like that as well, where we'll be able to quantify this country needs to do this, this country needs to do that, you've been named and shamed, we'll come back next year and we'll update our targets. I mean, of course it won't happen like that, but when I'm president of the world, it will. Um, those were like the big trends we looked at um, and I think that most of them will will keep going. I mean, the energy price crisis as well, that is going to leave a lasting impact on um, the political landscape as well as the policy landscape because it's still fresh, people are still losing money. Um, maybe we could just have a quick sort of word on the specific things that we're going to be looking out for. Um, is there anything in the coming months that's sort of looming large on your radar and which you think is maybe something niche or maybe something more you know obvious that needs to be addressed? I think the reason I'm bringing it up is probably because it's quite low on my radar, but I would <laughs> like it to be looming large, uh, is the energy performance of buildings directive and the the trilogues which will be happening i think they've had their first one and they're going the first one is always just hi nice to meet you and then they're going to go into the, the deeper conversations it's a big piece of implementation legislation like there's a lot of actual action mm-hmm. that is done there i mean we know buildings are so so uh, necessary to tackle if we are going to meet europe's climate goals but it has had a massive backlash and i think it's also something which people can see and are worried that will affect them and to a certain extent it might Mm. and the role of the negotiations now is to make sure that it affects people in the right way 
and that the communication side is massive. I, I'm sure I've told this story many times now, but I was in Austria buying earrings from some guy. Uh, it came up that I was an energy journalist and basically by the end of a 10-minute conversation, I'd assured him that first of all, the law had not been agreed yet. Mm -hmm. And secondly, he wasn't going to lose his house. It wasn't going to be stolen from him. Mm -hmm. And to come from Brussels to that conversation was really quite worrying to see that this yep. isn't being... The, the, message isn't being put across. The narrative has escaped quite a lot. I mean, Precisely. We see it in Italy as well. They're yeah. going to tear down all of our palazzi and everything, but obviously that is not true. So I think definitely be watching that to see whether, first of all, the ambition mm -hmm. is carried through mm -hmm. and then whether it actually leads to something and hopefully leads to you know, some good renovations that will actually help people. Do you think that this risks being captured by, well, like we said, you know, we're within that 12-month period between before the elections. And I think this is something that is unfortunately ripe for a bit of populism to affect the process. I think it's an easy one to do that with. I mean, people care about their house. It's, it's a very emotional subject for a lot of people. And then the way that you have to explain it is so technical mm -hmm. that it's very difficult to push back on these things. But on the other hand, if people are using this as kind of a, an agenda for votes, maybe that actually shows that it's something that's useful and that it is going to push forwards and create action to tackle climate change. Because if it wasn't ambitious, then people wouldn't care about it. That's true. I mean, I, I guess that's probably the, the double-edged sword that the people involved with this are thinking about is that maybe you'd want it to keep it on the down low beneath people's radars because, you know, then you don't open it up to uh, being uh, captured by rhetoric. But on the other hand, there isn't so much pressure to get something a bit more ambitious then. You know, you want the headlines in the big newspapers saying, you know, your house is costing you thousands of pounds a year when it should be making you money. Yeah. Um, so I, well, I mean, we'll find out, I guess. I mean, probably, I mean, they want a deal by the end of the year, whether or not they'll get one or not. I mean, Spain now has to do extra work on the market review, like we said, when, you know, they would be put perhaps putting more emphasis on that. I mean, we've already seen it put aside by the Swedish presidency. Yes. And then you have Spain as well. It, everyone's focused on the market reform and this could be the thing which kind of drops through the the cracks i find that I, I, I seriously find that odd because it feels like something you know if you're listing your achievements at the end of your six months this is a really good one because even though it does have you know the different um minimum energy performance standards and the different bits of legislation in there it's still very much a national government-driven piece of legislation. This isn't like Brussels imposing stuff. Yeah. So it just seems like something that um, you would want to focus on because then at the end you say, well, we did that. We made your house better. But then again, it is more complex than that. I'm also <laughs> not sure how much presidencies want are able to do that because yeah. I don't know how many people know what a presidency is. So unless you can translate it, down, <laughs> we all do. Unless you can translate it down to you know us as the Spanish government negotiated this, but then like we say, you open yourself up to the attacks of the Spanish government. They like, allowed Brussels to do this. Yeah, everyone's going to lose their house. We're all going to have to go live in Portugal. Or, yeah, you know. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with Portugal. No. <laughs> Um, so that's a, that is a really good one. I, I I also hope that it will be done before the end of the year because it's you know we all we all live somewhere, um, so it would be nice to know 
what needs to be done before 2030 and beyond. Thinking about beyond 2030, see this organic segue that I did there. Um, the one policy that I am quite interested in seeing pan out is the 2040 emissions reduction target that the EU is yet to formally talk about at all. Um, to everyone who's listening, we have a 2030 emissions target, which is, is it still 55% or is yeah, it 57 It's 55%, or? but it's 57% if you include removals by land. This is why you get a like climate nerd on your podcast, because <laughs> like, I can talk the percentages all day. <laughs> so we've got, we've got that one. And then in 2050, obviously, we have the net zero, climate neutral, whatever you want to call it, benchmark that is supposed to, um, well, honour our Paris Agreement pledge, I guess. Um, but that's 20 years to fill. Um, there needs to be a midpoint, I guess, because otherwise everyone's going to wait until 2048 to do anything. But, um, but so that's what needs to be. The talk's going on already. Um, I think it was last month or even maybe the month before um, Europe's scientific advisory board on climate change, which is, I guess, like the CCC in uh, the UK. It's quite new, actually, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's only been so around under for the year. climate law. So yeah, I mean, maximum a couple of years old, and don't think even that. And it's you know, it's meant it's meant to give scientific advice to policy makers so they can take political decisions, which is I think a very underappreciated um, policy, to be honest. Um, and they came out with a report that said that this twenty forty target should be ninety to ninety five percent, which I thought it's was huge. very ambitious. Um, and it's all grounded in scientific reality i mean it's you know they're, they're climate experts delegated from national bodies to say what needs to be done so i guess when the european commission maybe this one probably the next one um comes around to having to address this they will have something to point to and say look we've crunched the numbers somebody else has crunched the numbers this is what needs to be done um, and then I guess when that is in place, we get to renew everything else. You know, that has to be a renewable energy target, yeah. uh, 4.0. Woo, get to it all again. Um, I think, like you said, the fact that this has come so early in the process is very good because it puts pressure on from the beginning. What I'd be interested in is the European elections next year and what commission they produce. Because, you know, if we have a similar one to this year, okay, maybe it will be a bit under that, but there's that ambition to at least get there mm. but if we do continue this right-wing swing that we're seeing across Europe at the moment I don't know there's a bit of a concern that other things could become the priority and this 2040 target becomes something which they say oh it's fine we have 2050. We already know the destination we don't need another uh, burden that regulators have put on our industries and if this European Commission uh, wanted to make itself a bit uh, unpopular maybe or popular with other people would be to propose something before the end of its mandate. So before probably May next year and say, look, even if it's just a communication or something saying, oh, we, we think the 2040 target should be this. And that would bind the next one to probably doing something because you can't just ignore it, especially if the European commission president might be the same person. Um, how likely that is probably not likely, but I think it would be funny. It would be a final <laughs> bit of drama. That would be amazing. I think, as, I'm not sure how you see this, but for me, 90%, it feels so much bigger than net zero. Even yes. though net zero is actually you know, more ambitious, somehow having that 90% when we've been talking about uh, 55% for so long, it's just like, it shows you just the scale of what needs to be done in a relatively short period of time. Absolutely. I mean, when the last commission was putting together the 2050 target, I mean, they had three or four different 
pathways or options that they came out with before they proposed this, you know, net zero option. And one of them was 90%. So, you know, and now we're seeing so much scientific uh, thinking about how 2050 is too late to honor Paris Agreement pledges. Um, so this, you know, this could be a way to make good on that without having to, I mean, they would never be able at the moment to update the 2050 target. I, I think that would be totally politically impossible because it was a miracle. They did it in the first place, quite frankly. Um, I remember European commission officials at the time praying for it to be accepted because they wanted the destination to be set because then that would bind everyone to everything yeah. else. It was a bit of a, you know, look at what this hand is doing while we commit you to agreeing to, renewables, energy efficiency and whatnot. But I think this is going to be more difficult because, like you say, you already have the big target. Um, so I guess they will have to think about how they do it. Yeah, and I think we're beginning to see the discussions, or we should begin to see the discussions on what is allowed to keep emitting. Like, yeah. what is going to be that 5 or 10%? Yeah. And again, we, we've talked about lists earlier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's going to be the worst list in the world to try and have to draw up. Uh, and then, you know, carbon removals and the role of that as well, I think is going to become really interesting in, in that discussion. I, th I mean, the, sort of a final point on this maybe is that the, I mean, they call it climate neutrality, whatever that means, still haven't got a, a, a satisfying um, definition of that. On the one hand, that's a great thing to do because you make it so vague that people agree to it and they don't really think through. But on the other hand, they're thinking about this 2040 target. 90% cuts. Like you say, that sounds like more than what they already have. So that really reduces the likelihood of that ever getting any support from the people who are needing support. So I think it's maybe a, a sad example of EU jargon doing the opposite of what it should do um, and making things more difficult. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking forward to. Um, plenty to keep us busy. I think. Oh, so much. Yeah. Um, I guess to wrap up the show now, there is just a very, very small matter of the quiz question. I asked everybody listening, and you, Kira, which European country has the European country has the cleanest electricity grid, emitting just twenty-three grams of CO two per kilowatt hour produced? Is it France, Albania, Iceland, or Sweden? You think it is? See, this is when my brain goes into full like journalist mode. Is like, is it an EU country or European country? <laughs> I'm saying nothing. So, like, my brain is saying, is this a trick question? Um, I'm going to go for Iceland. Oh, it's the second cleanest. So, half a point for that. It's Albania. Wow. Okay. Uh, purely because they rely almost exclusively on hydropower to generate electricity. Uh, whereas Iceland, I guess, is a bit more resilient to climate change with geothermal and everything. So maybe in a year or two, we can re-edit this and you will be right. I'll just keep like cheerleading uh, Iceland. And I, then I'll be right I, one day. I put France in there, but I knew that you wouldn't go for France because you know that it isn't all nuclear. It's uh, They've got uh, other stuff they shouldn't have still as well. But anyway, um, another thing I thought was quite interesting is that you've got Albania is in the top five cleanest in the world, not just Europe. Uh, and right next door in Kosovo, um, they've got the worst, one of the worst in wow. the world. 769 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, which is a lot. Um, so, yeah, all that's left for us to say uh, is thank you all for tuning in this episode. Thank you, Kira, so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is going to be the last one for a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be back after the summer break. 
In the meantime, why not check out our back catalogue of 20 episodes? I think this will be the 21st by the time it goes out, which seems like a low number because it seems like it's been doing this for a long time. But uh... It's the same as cops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we insist that you listen to the episodes that have already come out, uh, as well as our sister podcasts, What Matters and Energy Enablers. They're all available on foresightdk.com. Uh, the latest magazine is also out. It's all about markets. Very interesting. Great illustrations. Uh, perfect for reading on the beach or next to the pool. You can't uh, have time off too much from energy and climate. Otherwise, you lose track and you fall behind, I've recently discovered. Uh, so join me next time for another episode of The Policy Dispatch, uh, where we'll be taking another trip through the fascinating world of the energy transition.